to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Today, I'm talking to Mallory Wegeman. Mallory spent much of her life as a competitive swimmer, but then a routine medical procedure caused her to become paralyzed, and she almost quit swimming altogether. But she found the courage to get back in the pool and became a Paralympic gold medalist. Today, we're talking about her new book called Limitless, The Power of Hope and Resilience to Overcome Circumstance. Some of the things she talks about include grief, how to accept things you can't change, and how to find the courage to keep going when you encounter adversity. Make sure to stick around for the end of the episode for the therapist's take. This is a part of the show where I'll break down the strategies Mallory shares and tell you how to apply them to your own life. So here's Mallory Wegeman. She's mentally strong. This is her story. Mallory Wegman, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I read your book, Limitless, The Power of Hope and Resilience to Overcome Circumstance. It's a wonderful read, and I think you'll give a lot of hope to people who are struggling and people who think, I can't get through whatever tough times they're facing. So thank you for writing it. And as we were just talking before we started, right now is a especially difficult time to be talking about your book and promoting your book because you are very busy. Can you tell us what it is that you're doing aside from doing interviews to promote your book? Yeah, so I am currently training for the Tokyo 2020 Games, which were postponed to this summer in 2021. So we are, you know, within the six month out window and training incredibly hard for a moment that turned into our once every five year moment. It's usually once every four years. And um, now it's our five year journey. And so it's been a little extra hectic, but they're all fun things. And I remind myself every day when I look at my calendar, if it's a little bit more busy, than I would prefer some days. I'm like, but remember you get to do this. And so I think it's such a good reminder of just putting it into perspective. And and I feel so fortunate to be, you know, as an athlete, I turned 32 in March. And so that's getting like old, if you will, which seems crazy to say, but to be 32 and training for what will become my third Paralympic Games and still have the ability to do that, I definitely do not take that for granted. I think there's so much power in in just flipping the switch in terms of the language that you use and saying, instead of I have to do something, I get to do this. It feels so much different, doesn't it? It really does. And I think it's to a lot of the things that fill our day, they're all things that at some point we wish we had, right? Like a year, two, three years ago, it's like the very thing we're doing now to some element we wish we had that at one point, whether it's being a parent and having kids running around the house or whether it's something exciting with your career, whatever it might be. Um, so yeah, flipping that switch, like you said, it, it definitely is a powerful thing to do. For my listeners who don't know, can you explain what happened? Because your book captivated me from the moment I started reading it. You were talking about some of your family members, the health issues they had. And then boom, you had this huge surprise in your life. Yeah. You know, I grew up in Minnesota and and 
I'm the baby of three girls. You know, my family, we've, we've been a swim family since ever since I can remember. I've competed since I was seven. And, and like you said, you know, there were some struggles with my oldest sister and, and she quite literally fought life and death when I was a teenager. And so we had kind of been through the ringer and, and had seen the worst side of things while also coming out grateful that we still had her with us. And so we hadn't seen the absolute worst. And after I graduated high school, I graduated in June of 2007. And I did a year at home just to kind of take a breather. There'd been a lot of life that happened when I was in high school. Um, I had some just like random lingering things going off my own health. And so I was like, I'm going to stay home, do community college for a year, get rid of some of my generals, get them under my belt, and then transfer out of state. And it was the second week of spring semester. And it was Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And I had been getting epidural injections to help treat some lingering back pain I had from shingles that I got my senior year in high school. And I went in that day and I simply never walked out. Um, I thought it was going to be a day procedure like the previous two had been. And I would go home and go back to class Tuesday morning and kind of move on with spring semester. And unfortunately, due to a complication in the procedure, I was left paralyzed. And instead, I was admitted to the hospital where I stayed for six weeks and ultimately came home in a wheelchair. And, you know, I was 18 years old. And I think so many of us, we can kind of think to that period in our lives where it's like, by all technical purposes, you're an adult, but you're still really figuring out what it is that you want to do or kind of what that path is for you. And I had all those questions. I think every 18-year-old has at some point in that transitional journey that they're on. And then my paralysis happened. And it was like everything I knew to be true was just flipped upside down. And I felt like I was looking to the world around me with more questions than answers. I felt like I looked to a world around me that I didn't feel represented in. Everywhere I went, I, I didn't feel like I saw people who looked like me, if you will. And, and that made it really hard to see what a path forward could look like as now a young woman living life in a wheelchair with these different sets of circumstances. Um, so in a lot of ways, January 21st, 2008, I, I call it my sudden moment of impact. And you know, I think though, when it comes down to it, we all have them. Like we've all had our January 21st, 2008s in our lives. Maybe we've had a handful of them. And it's about how you react and how you respond and who you choose to be moving forward. So who did you choose to be? How did you decide, okay, I was dealt this hand. What am I going to do about it? Gosh, you know, it took time, doesn't it? Always, I feel like after something hard happens and, and it took time to figure out like, first of all, what even happened? I mean, it was just like this shock of, oh my gosh, now, okay, how do I transfer into a wheelchair? How do I dress myself again? Like, how do I do all of those little things? And I think ultimately for me, the biggest choice I made came my first night at home. And I was carried upstairs to my bedroom where my parents were still finishing my room downstairs for me. And when they left, they shut the door and I was left in this room that looked almost exactly the same as when I walked out of it six weeks prior. And I realized that come morning, 
what I chose to do in that moment was going to set the pace for the days and weeks and months to come. And it seemed like such a simple decision, but when you're in the depths of grief, it's really hard to pull yourself together. And I knew like I could either just kind of stay stuck in there and just stay in my room and literally sulk in the grief that I found myself in, or I could get up in the morning and I could slowly make my way into my wheelchair and get myself dressed and ready and and wheel out my door and lean on my parents and my sisters and our community and start trying to piece a life together. And I didn't have the answers for what that life was going to look like. But I did know that just very simple choice of choosing to get out of bed that next morning was such a big pivoting moment in just, like I said, setting the pace for the days and weeks and months to come. And so I think ultimately, I just, I chose to live. And I knew I had so much life ahead of me. I think it would have been so easy to stay in bed and just say, I'm going to have people wait on me or I deserve to do this for a few months or I shouldn't have to do anything for a while. Good for you for pulling yourself out of that and saying, how am I going to, what am I going to do now? How am I going to do this? And in your book, it was pretty powerful how you talk about those steps that you took with therapy, with trying to figure out what was next. And something you mentioned before that you told your dad you wanted sneakers, so you go to the mall And that moment you realized, wait a minute, if I'm in a wheelchair, things are a little bit different now for me. Yeah. it's. uh, I I still talk about that moment when we went to the mall. And it's silly. I mean, I'm the baby of three girls. So when I got a pass from the hospital, it was like, well, we need shoes. So let's go to the Mall of America. What the heck? It's down the road, right? Like I was kind of like, oh, this will be fun thinking... It would be something exciting and different. And when we went, I was so shell-shocked with the world around me. I mean, the entire time we were there, I was like, I just felt like people saw, like looked through me. They saw me, but they didn't see me. And I just became kind of this object, not a person. It was like my wheelchair was the thing and I, the person in it, was invisible. And I didn't see anybody that looked like me. I, I... I didn't really see a path forward for a really long time. And that that was really tough. And so I think that there was a little bit of soul searching and not just overcoming grief, but finding a way forward in a world that was so quick to tell me all the things I would never get to do in my life. And I often say, you know, we we all face that. I mean, goodness, we all look in the mirror and have our own things that we we battle. And every single one of us, at times is not necessarily kind to the reflection back when we see ourselves. And it's like, oh, my hair is doing this funny thing or like the vain things or even just the deep rooted scars that we carry. Um, But I I think I learned very quickly that I was going to battle coming to terms with my own reflection in the mirror now that I had four wheels beneath me and the emotional scars that came with it. But I also had to learn how to combat the outpouring of opinions from strangers of the the pity and the just one-liners of essentially how unfortunate my life now was or that I was broken or all of these things, these random things that you could never believe people would say that people have said. And I finally had to realize at the end of the day, other people's perceptions of me and what I'm capable of isn't a reflection of my true capabilities it's a reflection of their insecurities. 
Oh, that's good. Yeah. That is so true for all of us. I mean, goodness, like think of that big ambitious dream or goal you've had and you share it with somebody and you're met with like all the reasons why it's not going to work or why that's not for you or why logistically it can't happen. And it's like, hold up. We already went to the no. We already went to the can't versus the why not. So how about now when somebody says something to you implying that you can't do something, how do you respond? Oh, I always respond with a smile because I never know who's around. So I'm like, just take a deep breath, smile. And I do truly believe, you know, before my injury, I probably would have had a lot of foot and mouth moments as well because you just also don't know what you don't know. Granted, some are like very blatant. I mean, I before COVID, I was out grocery shopping and I push a cart like anybody else who's grocery shopping. I just do it with one hand so I can wheel my chair with the other. And um, an older man just kind of came up to me and looked at me and said, essentially, how miserable life must be living like that with like a hand motion like that to my body. And I just was like, you don't even know what to say. I mean, I told them to have a nice day because at the end of the day, it's like how sad and insecure must you be in your own life if you're saying that to other people. But then mentally, in, in I think in my heart of hearts, I sometimes it bothers me. I'll be honest, I'm human. I have, I have a heart that feels emotions, but I also know that it empowers me to almost do more and to continue to play my part in changing perception of disability in our society. And at the end of the day, that conversation is universal. It's beyond disability. It, we, all, we all face that. We all face the, the unconscious bias and stigmas that other people have. Um, and it's just really, I mean, it, it sounds stupid, but it's as simple as just, it's how we choose to react, whether we give those words weight or whether we just move on with our day and keep doing our thing. How do people respond when they find out what a talented swimmer you are? <laughs> um, I think some people are still like, they're shocked. I don't know if they get it. And then they see me swim and it's like, oh, she's doing a thing. Um, but it's strange. I, I laugh because when I, before my injury, I was a swimmer. I've competed since I was seven. I mean, we're going on almost 25 years of competitive swimming in my life. And I was as average as they came as a kid. I mean, I didn't go to state. I was just like the little chatty Kathy on the team who loved to, you know, sit on the bleachers with my teammates and hang out. And I loved swimming and I always worked hard, but I wasn't there with this like extreme competitive intensity. And so I, I just laugh anytime I think of kind of where my career has gone post paralysis because... I mean, my coach and I still joke about it because my coach right now was my high school coach when I was oh, interesting. paralysis. And he's like, I mean, he inducted me into, he was the individual who did my introduction for my induction into the Minnesota Swimming Hall of Fame. And we we sat there and looked at each other and I was like, I didn't even come to this banquet as a high school swimmer because I didn't even make it to state. Like, and here I am getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. What a twist of events. Um but it's fun. I mean, I just, I love to swim. It's my place. Well, one of the things that stuck out to me in your book is you talked about how you went from thinking of yourself as somebody who suffered a spinal cord injury to somebody who is living and thriving with an injury. How did you make that switch in your head? Yeah, words matter, don't they? They the do. They're so powerful. 
yeah, the way we give weight to them and the things we say, just how that can change our own mindsets and then how it also starts changing the mindset of others around you. And so that was a really big transition for me. And I I think in a lot of ways, you know, I talk about swimming with a lot of fondness because A, I love to swim. I mean, my passion for the sport is still just as pure as it was when I was a little kid running around that pool deck. But at the same time, in so many ways, swimming saved me. I mean, it was the thing that brought me back to life after I was injured. And it was the, it was exactly what I needed because it required me to physically excel at something when I was in a body that society told me meant I was now physically incapable of doing things. And so it was like every time I hovered over a black line and got faster, it was me proving my strength and having to showcase physical strength. And I think that with that, I also found that I wasn't broken because of that day in 2008. I mean, sure, I get around on four wheels, but I am as whole as they come mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and physically. Like my legs don't work, but there's a lot of me that does and it works very well. And I utilize it to go win gold medals and do really cool things I never thought possible. And so... I think it was through swimming and through realizing exactly what I was capable of that I really started to fight back. For a while, it was me fighting back against the idea of disability. Like I didn't even like having kind of that label on me. But then with time, I realized I had pride in it. Like I am a woman with a disability and I'm proud of that. It's like being proud about the fact that I'm a strong, independent female, right? And I then realized that a lot of it was just on words and how they are used. I didn't like being seen as somebody who is disabled. I live with a disability, but I'm not disabled by my disability. And, you know, I'm not suffering from one. I'm, I'm living this, this life that's full and, and rich and love and support and community and all the things that at the end of the day, I think we all just aspire to have. And so... It's been a transition over years, but it's something I talk a lot about now just because I think it's a really important perspective shift in how we utilize words when we talk about ourselves and when we talk about others. And another huge takeaway for me from your book was how you talked about how healing isn't always doesn't always happen according to a chronological timeline. And I'm a therapist, so I work a lot with people who have emotional wounds and they think, oh, I'm going to get better and I should be better by next month or next year. And then they have a setback and they think that they're all the way back at the beginning. But sometimes it's just one step back and it doesn't mean that they haven't made any progress. It just means it's another opportunity to, to grow and learn and heal and move forward. You make that abundantly clear in your book through your own experiences. Yeah, I love that you use the word move forward because i think we get stuck on this idea when we're when we're moving through grief and trauma that we have to move on from it and it's like no you you, you can't like i hate to say it but you can't and i was totally that person early on where it was like i had to move on from my paralysis and then i realized well, that's the dumbest idea ever because i wake up every single day with a wheelchair next to me like it's a part of me whether i like it or not so i might as well embrace it and move forward with it um And I I do, I think there was a lot of power in my journey of finally understanding that 
there's not a right or wrong way to grieve or process in terms of the timeline of it. And I, I think early on, I felt a lot of pressure that if I experienced joy too soon, I was in denial. And if I was sad for too long, then I wasn't accepting what was going on. And it's like, but first of all, I truly believe it's not either or. I mean, you can be heartbroken and be filled with joy and happiness and have exciting moments in your life and still be heartbroken in other areas. And that's okay. And you know what? I'm 13 years in and I'm still going to have days where, let's be honest, sometimes being paralyzed sucks. Like I've done a lot of awesome things and, and I've really come to terms with what happened. But at the end of the day, we we still have these hard days in life. And that's okay. It doesn't need to be like this, okay, I get six months and that has to be boxed away, put in the back of my closet and I never revisit it again. And if I do, I'm not doing grief right. And I I think that there was also just a lot of societal pressure of... Again, when you when you kind of wear your scars on your sleeve, if you will, in a way where the world around you can see it, there's a lot, there's an outpouring of opinions of kind of how you should feel and what you should do and what you should be thinking. And so finding the strength to honor my journey for what it was for me and meet myself in the moment that I was in was a really powerful piece of this. And I think for anybody that's a big thing. And, and I am I am not a therapist. So I'm going to make that abundantly clear because this is purely off of my personal experience. Um, but I, I do think there's, there's power to just letting yourself be. I think we try to rush past it too quickly sometimes. And we're always, we're always looking for what's ahead of us and not just meeting ourselves where we're at in this moment. And if that's, feeling sad 13 years after trauma, all right, and feel sad. If that's feeling happy two weeks later, all right, feel happy. Like you've got to let yourself just be sometimes. Yeah, I think there's a stark difference between what we talked about earlier when you had to push yourself the first day that you stayed at home because you weren't going to stay in bed and feel sorry for yourself for weeks on end. You knew, okay, I have to accept that this is my life at this moment. What am I going to do about it? But it didn't mean that you didn't feel sad, right? I think a lot of people tend to think that uh, you're, like you say, either or. You're either accepted this, you moved on, and you're doing okay with it, or you haven't. And that we can feel both, and that grief tends to come in waves, and that time doesn't necessarily heal anything. It's what you do with your time that matters, and you have to figure out how do I let myself feel bad sometimes? And how do I not stay stuck in a place of pain? Yeah, no, it's, it is so true. And um, I don't know, I think it's just, that was one of the biggest things I had to, I had to move through and process and give myself permission to just be what I needed to be in the moment and um, not feel the pressure of what other people thought I should be doing and um, a timeline that they thought I should be doing it on. And it's the same thing with success, right? Like people assume, you know, if you if you have the success in your life, you must be happy because you have so much to be grateful for. And, and that creates a really slippery slope because then people who feel sad or overwhelmed or whatever, when they have all these things around them that we're told we, sh- we need to be grateful for, feel guilty for feeling sad or overwhelmed or whatever it might be. And so I really do. I think it's just 
and look at this past year. I mean, goodness gracious. We've all had that moment where 2020 and everything with COVID was hard and challenging. And I had it myself where I was really struggling. And then it was like, I would try to tell myself I'm not allowed to be upset because at the end of the day, I have a roof over my head and food on my table and everyone in my family is healthy. And and those are all true statements. And I'm super fortunate in that. But that doesn't mean I'm not still facing my own pain in certain ways. And sometimes you just have to let yourself be in that moment instead of tell yourselves all the reasons why it could be worse and fall then down into like the trap of being feeling guilty for feeling sad. <laughs> like it's um it's a spiral. It really is. It is. And so often we compare ourselves, right? We either think other people are doing better than we are. And then other times we do exactly that. We start thinking, well, at least I'm not doing as bad as this, or it could be worse. That doesn't make you feel better in the long run thinking, well, yeah. like it could be worse. I do think that there is a, a fine line between saying, how do I have gratitude in my life? But how can I be grateful and still be sad sometimes? And it's okay to still say, yeah, I still don't feel great today. And I'm still grateful for something. Yeah. But I think that there is something about trying to be too positive all the time that's kind of harmful. And sometimes I think it's okay to be grateful for the things in our life that have caused pain. As strange as that might sound, it's like, I mean, I still face the emotional scars of the trauma from that day. But on January 21st of this year, we celebrated my 13th anniversary. And every year we've chose to celebrate. And sure, I might be sad at any given point on that day, but I also choose to celebrate it. So again, it's not either or. And, you know, I, I think for me, it was finding gratitude in that journey and in the pain that I had to navigate through because it's what's given me the strength and perspective I have now. And, you know, unfortunately, we have to travel through the depths to understand sometimes what's on the other side of it and to have that perspective. And so as as weird and twisted as that sounds, sometimes it's also finding the space to be grateful for the things that actually have caused us pain once we've been able to get to the other side because we're able to appreciate our own strength and courage to move through it. That's what we find from people who come out of a lot of traumatic experiences and they feel like they came out stronger on the other side. They're able to say, I learned from it and I grew from it. I wish it didn't happen. I wish I didn't have to learn these lessons this way. However, I went through it and yeah, in some ways I've learned and I can now appreciate life a little bit differently than I did before. Yeah. No, it's it's so true. It's um everybody's journey is different. I think it really comes down to that and you know, one of the things that I I really put an emphasis on when I was writing Limitless is Limitless is my story. But I also wanted to give a space for other people to feel and be able to reflect on their own because we all have a story. We all have a journey and I believe that limitless is a way of being. It's a it's a way of understanding that we are more than our circumstances. And I think in order to get there, we have to allow ourselves to honor our journey for all it is, the good and the bad. And when we can do that, that's when we find that freedom, if you will, that's kind of on the other side of it. And so that was a really big kind of just overarching sub-conversation within the story because for me, that's just been 
my own journey through over these past 13 years. So what would you say to somebody out there who's struggling with something right now and they feel like they're in a pretty dark place and maybe they're doubting their ability to to overcome something that they're facing? Yeah. You know, I, I've <laughs> somebody asked me this question and framed it in telling my 18-year-old self. And because my 18-year-old self was already really in a very dark place. Um and it's it's really interesting just the emotion that comes up with just even some frame of reference of that because right now I I feel like I have the fortunate I'm fortunate to be in the light. Let's say that. I had a very dark 2017 and 2018 in my life. And in 2019 I got to come in the light. And in 2020 I fought with everything I had to stay in the light. And I I think one of the biggest things that I found is the power of community. My my husband, my parents, my loved ones, and just the strength that I get from them to understand. And this isn't this in 2008, I didn't understand this. In 2017 and 2018, I did start to understand this, that it's okay to lean on people and asking for help doesn't make you weak. It just makes you human. And it's okay to allow people to help you through this time, but also just really understanding that this moment isn't all encompassing. Like it's not going to last forever. And while it feels like it is right now when you're in the midst of it, there's not only light at the end of the tunnel, there is still lightness around you. You just you just have to find the little slivers and and hold on to them and fight to keep fanning that flame. And you know, I mean, my 18-year-old version of me, she was terrified. She was she was in the darkness and it was really, really difficult. And, you know, I have the perspective of 13 years to know that it doesn't stay that way. And there honestly has been a lot more joy and love in my life following my paralysis than I ever had prior. So also understanding that this moment's not going to last forever. And somewhere along the way, you're going to realize that when this is all said and done, you are stronger because of what you're facing right now. And you're going to grow into something far more beautiful than you ever could have dreamed possible. Mallory, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. I hope everybody goes out and buys a copy of Limitless. I know you're going to change a lot of lives. So thank you so much for sharing with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies for building mental strength and explain how you can apply them to your own life. Mallory shared a lot of mental strength building strategies during our conversation. Here are three of my favorite tips that she discussed. Number one, push yourself to get out of bed. Mallory said the first day she woke up in her own bed after becoming paralyzed, she pushed herself to get up and get going. While it was likely tempting to just stay in bed, she knew she had to push herself. So while you might not ever be in that exact same situation, I bet that you'll have a time or two in life when you're tempted to give up or stop trying. When you find yourself in those situations, think about Mallory's advice. Push yourself to get up and get moving. Don't sit around and wait until you feel like it or don't expect that you'll just adjust to a big change by doing nothing. You have to take action. Number two, don't think of yourself as broken. Mallory talked about how she had to fight against the notion that she was broken. That's wise advice. 
You've likely endured something difficult in your life, like a physical health issue or even a traumatic circumstance. If you treat yourself, though, like you're a fragile, broken person, you'll never reach your greatest potential. You're much better off focusing on the fact that you're a survivor who has endured tough times, not that you're a victim who can't succeed. Mallory is certainly a great example of how to do this in life. And number three, don't put a timeline on grief. Mallory talks about how she felt like there were societal expectations on how long it should take her to grieve. Or she felt like once she declared that she was happy, she shouldn't ever be sad again. But she realized that grief is a really lengthy process. There's no right or wrong way to get through it. She also talked about how she sometimes experiences different emotions at the same time. She can be happy about her success, yet still grieve the things that she lost. This is something another former guest, Nora McInerney, talked about quite eloquently too. You can experience emotions that feel contradictory at the same time. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go check it out. It's episode number three. And during that show, Nora talked about her experience as being a widow and her refusal to embrace toxic positivity. Mallory gave some incredible words of wisdom surrounding grief. And she's right when she says there's no timeline and you don't necessarily move through it in nice, neat stages in a particular order. It's a painful process that's really messy, but it's also part of healing. I hope that you enjoyed Mallory's advice as much as I did. Push yourself to get out of bed, never consider yourself broken, and don't put a timeline on grief. To hear more of Mallory's story and her strategies for staying strong during tough times, pick up a copy of her book, Limitless, The Power of Hope and Resilience to Overcome Circumstance. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind Podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcast.